This week on the Backtable Podcast. The education part of it becomes critical. For example, three millimeter aneurysm will have such a low rupture rate. I mean, if it's an anterior circulation, it doesn't have other risk factors, no family history of ruptured aneurysm, but you'll still have patients that are extremely terrified of the fact that they have a three millimeter aneurysm. And I think it's really our job to assure them that, look, this is the extremely, extremely low rupture risk. Provide them as much kind of peace of mind as you can. And again, they have to process that information themselves. Some people will get it and be like, great, I'll see you in six months to a year for a follow-up to make sure this isn't growing. Other patients, you'll get a call like, hey, I've, I've stopped working out. I've stopped having sex with my partner. I'm stressed. I can't eat. I can't sleep. This aneurysm's just, you know, I feel like it's a ticking time bomb. And that's where I think that doctor-patient relationship is way more than just beyond the procedure, the numbers, the calculations. It's it's kind of that part that really goes into that unruptured counseling of, of a patient. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. First, a quick word from our sponsor. Flow diversion is a rapidly growing treatment method for treating intracranial aneurysms. Surface-modified devices have recently become available, which show great promise in advancing patient care in terms of safety and efficacy. While long-term clinical data is still being gathered, the FredX Flow Diverter with X technology has been shown to reduce material thrombogenicity while maintaining endothelial cell growth, as seen in the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery article from September 2022. For more information, visit fredx.com or contact your local microvention sales representative. Now, back to the show. I'm Sabine as your host today, and we have Dr. David Altschul, neurosurgeon at Montefiore Einstein in New York, and Dr. Omar Thunweer, neurosurgeon from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. What's really great is I'm excited to pick your brain, especially since you have both the surgery and endo approaches to treatment of cerebral aneurysms. We can really kind of delve into the evolution with all these new devices that are coming out. So before we do that, Omar, can we get a little intro about practice, your training, how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the introduction and the opportunity. Uh, I serve as the director of cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine. We've got a team of six people and uh, a variety across the disciplines in terms of neurology, radiology, and myself and my partner who are neurosurgeons as well. My training was all in New York. I was actually born and raised in New York. This is the first time I'm, I'm out of New York. Uh, residency was at NYU, fellowship was at NYU, and then I stayed on there as an attending uh, before I was recruited here. Got it. How long have you been now at Baylor? It's about two years now. Okay, cool, cool. And David, what about you? Yeah, so like Omar, I'm from New York dual-trained open and endovascular neurosurgeon, division chief of neurovascular surgery at Montefiore Einstein in the Bronx, uh, where I also did my residency training. I did my endovascular fellowship with Dr. Alejandro Berenstein in Manhattan and came back to Montefiore Einstein after finishing my fellowship, and I've been there since 2014. Awesome. Did you guys know each other in New York or no? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our paths crossed a few times. 
Yeah, that's pretty awesome. David, how much of your practice then, since you guys do both open surgical techniques and endo, just across the board, are you doing all neurovascular? Are you doing other stuff, you know, malignancy, other things? When I when I started, I, I did more cranial neurosurgery than I do now. But over the last, I would say, five years, I've been 100% neurovascular, whether it's endo or open. Got it. Got it. And what's the breakdown as far as if a general breakdown, are you doing mostly endo and then some surgery is a 50-50 or just kind of what comes? When I started, I was pretty much 50-50 and now I'm 80-20 endovascular. Got it. Omar, what about you? Yeah, same thing. Uh, you end up specializing so much so into into just neurovascular that it just doesn't make a lot of sense to take any other type of cases except neurovascular. So that's all I do now, 100% of it. And I agree, I think 80-20 is probably my latest in terms of split between cases. As many people will attest that that's the trend it's going. It's going more and more towards endovascular as the technologies get better, the procedures get safer. And then just like David and I both are at large kind of referring centers, you will get those cases that have failed endovascular treatment. So that probably is the 20% or so where people maybe have tried or just straight up, it's not a great case for endovascular and surgery is still a viable option, but it's, it's becoming far and fewer in between. Yeah, Omar, I don't know about you, but also the kinds of cases that we call vascular cases have changed for me over the last 10 years in that, you know, even some cases that were used to be covered by general neurosurgery, now our vascular group has kind of taken ownership over, whether it's decompressive hemicraniectomy for stroke patients or minimally invasive clot evacuations for intracerebral hemorrhage. Now that's all under the auspice of vascular neurosurgery. But when I started, that was just general neurosurgery. It's pretty amazing to see, you know, I agree. I think like the, all the neuro, the open and endo neurovascular surgeons, their practice has really, really grown over the last three, four years or even more. Just, just like you were saying, David, just all these other practice regimens have really been falling under there and, and there's, it's continuing to grow like at an exponential rate. It's, it's really exciting. Absolutely. Especially like we're debating whether to, to own subdural hematoma. We're not quite ready yet because that's a lot of cases, I think, for the vascular group if we decided to own that entirely. But it's something we've been considering. Yeah, it's a big undertaking. Omar, are you seeing the same thing in your, in your hospital system where these different procedures and disease states are kind of falling under neurovascular? Yeah, you know, subdural hematomas are a good example. That's definitely the trend of our field. The indications are just expanding to the point where if you look at your clinic, someone's chief complaint may vary from pulse tinnitus to subdural hematoma to uh, obviously aneurysms, AVMs, and, and the other bread and butter stuff. But yeah, absolutely. It's expanding. It's changing. And, and it is important to to realize that not everyone is also going to have great general neurosurgical training who are seeing these patients. So, so I agree, it's a tricky fine line on how, you know, what aspect of this care are you going to take over? Is it all of it? Which may be very easy for someone like Dave or I to do, or is it, is it still going to remain collaborative with another group or a team? But Absolutely. That that makes for a lot more interesting of a clinic day and a OR procedure day when you're just treating a whole, you know, wide variety of cases. Are you having clinic like every day or is it like you have two or one or two days at a clinic and the rest are procedure days? 
Yeah, my breakdown is uh, one and a half, it almost becomes two days of clinic and the rest of the days are uh, split between uh, mainly the IR and OR yeah. cases. David, same thing. Yeah, so for me, I do one one day of clinic and then I have two INR days dedicated for intervention, one OR day, and then the last day of the week is a smattering of diagnostic, academics, teaching, or surgery. Packed schedule. I bet, I bet your guys' clinics are just packed with a bunch of different disease states that you see, you know? Well, let's go, let's trail it back to cerebral aneurysms and we'll kind of just touch on the background and then we'll, we'll divide it into ruptured and unruptured. And then we'll kind of go into the technical side and the new technology. So for ruptured aneurysms, What's the general incidence of a ruptured aneurysm in the general population? What percent actually make it to the hospital? Yeah, you know, it varies on a lot of factors in terms of the kind of the severity of the rupture. But, and this used to be, this probably held true for other studies, but uh, it basically boils down almost to a rule of three. If you have a ruptured aneurysm, there is a chance, a third of a chance that you just may, you know, pass away immediately, a third of the chance you'll make it to the hospital and still have some deficits, or a third of the chance is just a, a bad headache. And uh, luckily, that was enough to alert the people you have a ruptured aneurysm. It, it's not quite a third, it's just sometimes easy to describe it to people in, in kind of that way. But yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into the survival and uh, presentation. And one of the most important things is how devastated you're presenting as is going to be very indicative of what your outcome is going to be. Got it. David, do you use like scoring skills like content has and ICH skills? Are, are you using those pretty regularly? Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, we use, you know, Hunt and Hess grading score to predict outcomes for these patients and modified Fisher scores to predict risk for vasospasm and things like that. Like Omar said, this is, can be a devastating illness, and there is a, a large chunk of people that don't do well from it. And so catching aneurysms and finding them before they rupture is a much preferred situation than to dealing with a already ruptured aneurysm. And what guides your, you know, you guys probably do your own ventriculostomies. What, what guides your decision to put a ventric in? Is it just based on patient being lethargic? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much just based on their exam. And if, if they're lethargic or Hutton-Hayes grade three and up, they're, they're getting a ventriculostomy. And thankfully, I, I work at a large center with a teaching institution. And so I can honestly say the last time I personally put in a ventriculostomy was quite some time ago. How many residents do you guys have, each of you, our fellows or residents? I take, uh, our, our program takes four a year, as well as a, a CAS certified fellowship as well. Yeah, so we're a little bit smaller residency program, alternating two and one a year, but we also have a CAS certified fellowship. That's great. Yeah, it's nice to have um, all that training and extra hands too. It's also tough to train, you know, this is the young the younger generations that give you mad kudos to, to doing all of that. Teaching is great. I think in a way it helps you master the information yourself. It makes you better and more knowledgeable. And working with trainees uh, is, is a challenge. They, they challenge your thinking and thought process and helps you kind of justify your actions and clinical decisions, I think, in a way that if they weren't there, probably wouldn't happen. So you have, you know, say your, your fellow or resident kind of, they got the call from the ER about a ruptured aneurysm. 
What's the information you're looking from them when you're kind of guiding yourself, whether you're going to take this patient for a treatment? What are the things you're looking for? Kind of like a brief outline, Omar. Yeah, you know, the uh, if, you're, if you're getting a call from a seasoned resident, they really can sum up everything you need to know probably within 15 seconds. Everything from age, hunt test presentation is a great way to start. So in fact, I will sometimes run through these presentations with the interns, PGY2s, 3s, just because it, you can get a lot of information with very few words out. And that's really helpful when you're getting called at 2 a.m. The other grades like the hunt test score, comorbidities, where the aneurysm is based on the CTA, if they have, usually that's the first study. Our hospital, also the, the feeding hospital or it's the receiving hospital for 18 hospitals across Houston. So often the aneurysm is known or is diagnosed and maybe someone had already done an angiogram there and they're just kind of sending them in. And so often we'll have a lot more information than, hey, I think there's a there's a bleed in the ER. I'll go figure it out some more. So often we, we kind of have a, a lot more information. And then the the plan afterwards is, is usually the same. We've got a great neuro ICU, about 40 beds, and uh, they will get everything else ready, make the decision whether an EVD needs to be placed. And for me, the first step is let's start with the angiogram and get more information and then see whether it's something to coil, which is often our almost have a coil first policy, obviously with, with a handful of exceptions, but versus taking to the operating room. Got it. David, are you using any kind of software too? I mean, there's plenty of platforms now, especially within Stroke. You have Viz, Rapids. Are you guys using this pretty regularly to evaluate aneurysms too? Yeah, yeah. We have uh, Viz AI for our system. And like Omar, we're in a large network of 11 hospitals and they're all uh, hooked up to Viz AI. We have Viz Aneurysm, so we use that Relatively new addition to the Viz software package, so still figuring out what it's good for, I would say. Yeah, I mean, for us, I think it's so helpful just to be able to share images and talk to our colleagues pretty easily instead of logging into PEC. So it's really helped our, at least the efficiency and the workflow in that regard. Absolutely. You know, and that's where it really shines is the ability to just communicate easily and share images and go over cases together with a group. And it's been a game changer for stroke and just how, how easy it is to use. Omar, now going to unruptured aneurysms, now this is a whole different ball game, right? I mean, do you use any scoring as far as deciding like what's the rupture risk? And how are you talking to your patients about what's the risk of rupture for, say, a three millimeter aneurysm somewhere? Yeah, you know, the the key, I think, for an unruptured aneurysm part of the discussion is is really patient education. It often is a decision that the patient will have to make. As opposed to a ruptured aneurysm, it still is a patient's decision, but you just feel this that, look, this is going to be a life-saving procedure. We, we strongly recommend it. But with unruptured aneurysm, the risk is always being taken by the patient. So there are the phases score. There's other scoring systems, but phases probably is the easiest where you can quickly Google it, pull it up on your screen, throw in a handful of those, uh, the questions they have, and they throw out a, a five-year rupture risk. And that by itself kind of gets tricky because a lot, a lot of people have more than five years of life ahead of them. So the question becomes, how many more of these five-year intervals do you have? And then if you add those things up, if that's even appropriate or not, because that, again, the data was just for five years, is that rupture risk for the rest of your life worth it? Uh, compared to the complications of having it treated. 
So the education part of it becomes critical. For example, three millimeter aneurysm will have such a low rupture rate. I mean, if it's an anterior circulation, it doesn't have other risk factors, no family history of ruptured aneurysm, but you'll still have patients that are extremely terrified of the fact that they have a three millimeter aneurysm. And I think it's really our job to assure them that, look, this is the extremely, extremely low rupture risk, provide them as much kind of peace of mind as you can and uh, kind of really get it, get it across. And again, they have to process that information themselves. Some people will get it and be like, great, I'll see you in six months to a year for a follow-up to make sure this isn't growing. Other patients, you'll get a call like, hey, I've, I've stopped working out. I've stopped having sex with my partner. I'm stressed. I can't eat. I can't sleep. This aneurysm's just, you know, I feel like it's a ticking time bomb and I hate that phrase, but because uh, it really, really scares them. But that's where I think that doctor-patient relationship is way more than just beyond the procedure, the numbers, the calculations. It's, it's kind of that part that really goes into that unruptured counseling of, of a patient. Do you feel, David, that, you know, with the advent of some new technology that we're going to talk about, that it's almost for some patients, it's like you would more be inclined to treat them because they're under this fear or they're, they're unable to live their life because they're just so scared of this aneurysm? Is it more, quote unquote, easy to treat these or, or what would you say? Yeah. So I would say that taking a patient's view and kind of psychology about knowing about having this aneurysm is an important part in making the decision whether to treat or not. Many anterior circulation aneurysms that are small, and you know, this is the quagmire of unruptured aneurysms, is that that's the most common thing you're going to see are small, less than seven millimeter anterior circulation aneurysms, which happen to be the safest ones when we're talking about risk of rupture. But it's hard for people that don't have brain aneurysms to understand what it feels like to have one. And, and this fear and anxiety and how it can impact their day-to-day life. So like Omar said, you do your best to educate and to alleviate their anxiety. And whether that's, why don't we just wait a little bit and do another scan and see, see if it changes. And maybe for many people, just seeing it not change over time is enough to get them over the fear of having it. And that, oh, hey, I, I just you know lived six months and I had no symptoms and everything's the same and life is is as it is. Um, and there, there are other people that just can't get over it. And, and for those people, if you can treat it safely, then you should. And the good news with new technology and new endovascular approaches is that the treatment of aneurysms has never been safer. And so it's really a good time to be in this field because I think right now, at least, we are getting closer to being able to treat aneurysms at a level of risk that is close to natural history. We're not there yet, but I think we're getting closer and closer every year. Totally. I mean, we already talked about the evolution of both your practices went from 50-50 to now 80-20 of treating cerebral aneurysms. That that was surgical and endo. But would you say that it's continuing to become more and more endo after that too? I mean, with the advent of of these new devices? Yeah, you know the uh, as much as David and I have really worked on perfecting or getting close to that art of surgery and and understanding it and spent years of our life training for that. There's not that much more innovation when it comes to surgery. There are imaging devices. There's there's better microscopes. There's better visualization of certain things. But for most of the part, all the instruments that we use in the OR have been like that for 50 plus years. Uh, The clip is a clip and 
the suction is a suction, you know, there's, there's very minimal, minimal improvements. Whereas endovascular, especially because we see what's happening, say in Europe, or we know what's being worked on in laboratories and what's coming around the corner, almost every few years, there's a game-changing innovation in endovascular, if not even more frequent. And so that innovation of it is probably what's led to just the safer outcomes. And like David was saying, when we get to the point where we've not only met natural history, but beaten it, then that's where our equation and math is always changing because the, the balance is always changing between the risk and benefit. So we're, we're definitely heading towards that direction. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of these devices that have been game-changing. Well, we'll just start, I mean, coils. Have coils really changed over the last 10, 15 years, in your opinion, as the technology, the, uh, the deployment, have the, has that changed? Coils have actually gotten better. They've been able to make them smaller, which has been very helpful in small ruptured aneurysms. They've added various biologic agents, which help improve the long-term outcome and occlusion rates when using coils. And they're making new and different shapes to be able to deliver in different shaped aneurysms. And then the catheters, the catheters in which you get there into the aneurysm has improved drastically over the last 10 years as well. It is pretty amazing. I mean, neuro devices, we have a funny kind of saying is that they're double, triple the price of like, you know, a, a body microcatheter, a coil, but the technology is definitely way better. I will always pull something off our neuro shelf if I need to do something really fine-tuned in the peripheral space. So the technology is definitely better and getting, you know, more and more innovative, as we said. Now, Omar, can you talk about the balloon-assisted technique or a stent-assisted technique for treating like a wide-necked aneurysm? Yeah, so the both offer, you know, a great option. They're both done very frequently in, in, in our practices. The balloon-assisted model or the balloon sort of model for uh for coiling, I prefer when it's a ruptured case and you don't want to leave a stent behind because they'll have to be on dual antiplatelets. And if they're a rupture, they may need an EVD, they may need surgery, etc. So I'm often finding myself using balloon to coil when I'm in a rupture. The other thing that the balloon affords is if you're coiling a ruptured aneurysm and it re-ruptures, at least you got the balloon there for flow arrest. The other time you may use the balloon is if you're dealing with an unruptured aneurysm, but the patient can't tolerate aspirin and plavix because they've got a GI, history of a GI bleed, an ulcer, and so it's wide neck. You, you want to treat the aneurysm, but you can't place a stent because of the, the other contraindications, and that'll help. However, though, when a stent could be tolerated, it does increase the efficacy and reduces the recurrence of that aneurysm. Because what a stent does is not only keep the coils in place, but it also starts to set up a scaffold at the neck where endothelial cells can kind of grow across. So you get more metal at the neck, you get the coils to stay in place, and you've got this fence scaffold for endothelial cells to kind of heal across as well. So both have their benefits. If I had to prefer, I'd choose stent-assisted coiling, but very often we're finding ourselves in situations where you just can't use aspirin and plavix. Flow diverters, that was my next kind of, I call it the alien technology because it's so freaking awesome. I mean, David, can you go into what what is a flow diverter and why has it really been a game changer in the setting of, of endovascular treatment of, of aneurysms? Sure. You know, flow diverters are, they are much less porous than a stent that is used for stent-assisted coiling. 
And for internal carotid artery, anterior circulation aneurysms, it's been a game changer as far as effectiveness and safety as well. The downside is, of course, the need for dual antiplatelet therapy, and that, that comes with its own risks. But it's really, it's dramatically changed how we treat aneurysms in general. I've seen it in my career too, just all these aneurysms that are being able to be treated now because of the flow diverter and, and other additional techniques. Now there's some really big specialty, you know, really kind of unique niche devices out there too. There's something called a web device. Omar, what is the web device? Yeah, the web device is fantastic. It's I, I'd also put that amongst one of those game-changing technologies. It's a intrasacular device. So kind of like coils where you're trying to put it into the aneurysm sac rather than a flow diverter, which is more of a, a vessel preservation device. You deploy it in the aneurysm. It almost uh, sometimes describe it to patients as a mesh sphere or a balloon that you kind of inflate, quote unquote, into the balloon. And uh, what happens is at the base of that device, there's a higher metal coverage. So you're getting flow diversion across the metal which is what the flow diverter stents really do is they divert the flow away at the level of the neck. But with the web device, you get that mainly within the aneurysm and at the base of the neck. And the benefit of that is you actually don't have a lot of, you don't have any metal in the normal part of the artery. And uh, so that obviously has its advantages as we're talking about, do patients need aspirin and Plavix? And the big category that this device really focused on helping us treat are wide neck aneurysms, which are prior to web the most difficult to treat. If you were going to treat it with a stent, often based of the bifurcations, you only you may need to use two stents in a Y configuration. Or if you choose one arm, you're only getting about 75, 50 to 75% of the neck covered with a stent. So this device really kind of aims at taking care of that population of aneurysms. David, would you use the web more in somewhere where there's like cases? It's usually like at a bifurcation, whether it's the basilar tip or an MCA bifurcation, kind of where you get a straight shot into it. Is that kind of the typical location for an intrasacular device? Yeah, yeah. Web is really designed for wide neck bifurcation aneurysms. And these aneurysms, again, are, are aneurysms that are not, not traditionally really that great for flow diversion. And they tend to be more distal. And when you use flow diverters in that situation, then you're maybe blocking off a normal branch artery. And, and the, the data on that is unclear. It, they don't work as well, let's say, compared to sidewall aneurysms. And so web is, a, is an approach for these other kinds of aneurysms that flow diversion may not be as great an option for. And so that's, again, ICA bifurcation, basilar bifurcation, anterior communicating artery and middle cerebral artery aneurysms for the most part. Got it. And uh, just kind of listing out different kind of devices I've seen come through my department. What about using these kind of specialty guide catheters? I mean, there's, there's a guide catheter coming out every single day, you know? Yeah. Like, are you guys incorporating all of this or is it almost getting too diluted with too many devices? You know, one of the challenges we also have is we have a diverse group of practitioners. So it falls on us to, you know, and everyone comes in with their own biases, their own experience that, hey, where I came from, this is all I use. So I want to do that. So part of the balance is keeping a lot of things available that that maybe needed for different times. And 
I mean, there's a role for these type of catheters. It's good to know what they do so that you can get into make tight turns or and get to where you want to. There's uh, balloon guide catheters. And, and what kind of goes into my configuration more is am I going radial or femoral is, is one of the first kind of considerations. Is it hemorrhagic or ischemic uh, case that I'm doing? And what's going to be my setup? Do I need an intermediate catheter? If so, do the lengths make sense? Uh, so there actually becomes a lot more practical issues in terms of uh, do we have the right sizes for what we want to get done? Where is it? Is it if it's a cavernous aneurysm? I probably don't need the length. If it's a distal pericolosal, I'm going to need a setup that maybe has an intermediate. So there's a lot that goes into it. And the balance that we're trying to strike is a lot of different people, a lot of different preferences. Every catheter has pluses and minuses. So trying to keep things on the shelf uh, in, in kind of a fair manner is kind of what we've been trying to achieve. You know, with all these devices and technology, how do you keep up with quote unquote training on them or how, how do you know how to use, I don't know where to put this web or how to deploy, you know, the Fred extroverter, all these things. How do you how do you keep track of that? How do you train yourself and your entire team of fellows and residents? It's definitely becoming more challenging, right? When neuroendovascular started, there were like two companies and now they're like 20 companies and and they each trying to kind of create their own platforms and and devices to be worked on it. And so it's certainly harder than it used to be. But I would say that what you can do as far as staying up to speed is working on it with flow models, working with the industry. I use social media quite a bit. And if I haven't seen something, this is where, you know, things like Twitter and LinkedIn have been a game changer. I'm like, wow, like, look at this guy. He's using this technology or device in that way. And I didn't think about it like that. And that's really cool. And I'm going to, you know, I, I learn a lot that way now that than when I did, you know, say 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I see both of you are on Twitter and social media. David, you're pretty active. Omar, you're pretty active too. I mean, it's just like, you can really learn a lot. I've, I've been on it now for several years. And again, I agree. You just, you see different ways how people are treating disease states and opens your source. In addition to conferences and articles, it's just another way of gaining information. Yeah, like, I mean, I learned how to like straighten a, a radial loop from Twitter. You know, radial is something that didn't exist when I was in training, really. The devices weren't there. The technology really wasn't there yet. And so, you know, when you're learning, like, after training, it's different. And you got to find other ways to do it. And, yeah, I think the old school way was, you know, conferences and word of mouth and talking to industry themselves. But, you know, Twitter's really kind of opened it up. With all these devices, did I any kind of devices that I missed or that is on the horizon that you can kind of know about that will further innovate and evolve endovascular treatment of aneurysms? Yeah, you know, it's honestly what's interesting about our field is where we're going outside of aneurysms, right? Whether it's uh, and and what other disease states we're treating. Within the realm of aneurysms, we've got a lot of interesting devices that are still approved in Europe and not approved here yet. I believe there's a pretty decent effort on a lot of companies who have products there to get it approved here. But what's exciting is it is instead of kind of sometimes just taking the same product and bringing it over here, they're making some of these improvements to the products before they bring it over. And in fact, there's some changes with the European approval of ways that there's actually a handful of devices that are now first to come out in America and then is making it their way over. So there are a handful of things that may, may not be game changing. Time will tell. 
But what's very exciting definitely is, is where our field is going in terms of treatment of things like hydrocephalus, drug delivery, and opening up kind of those things. There's a lot that I'm sure you've seen on Twitter and social media about computer interfacing with brain with stent electrodes. And the population they're dealing with is way, it's much larger than the amount of aneurysms we have in the country. And so that's kind of the exciting part of where technology is evolving. I completely agree. And David, what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to aneurysms, you know, I agree there's that whole Europe to US thing, you know, even for things like web, the current version of web that we use is the fifth or sixth generation of it. And so it, it got a lot better by the time it made it to the US and the whole web 17 system and how small you can, you know, the small catheters that you can use now to, to deliver most of the webs is really great. And yeah, there's further developments in endosacular flow disruption. We've got all these surface modifications for all the flow diverter stents. And the, the golden apple, the golden fruit that we're all looking for is to find a flow diverter stent that we can safely use with monotherapy, antiplatelet monotherapy. And so hopefully at some point we can uh, innovate to the point where we reach something like that. And, and that would really be a game changer for ruptured aneurysms, I think. And I second, you know, all these different diseases that we're not currently even treating right now, it's amazingly cool and interesting to be a part of neuroendovascular at this time. But it's also scary because thinking about, well, if we take on hydrocephalus as a disease and now vascular owns it, like we need a lot more people to, to do these cases. We're going to be training a lot more uh, fellows uh, for sure. I know we've kind of touched on it multiple times, but for people who are considering this field, uh, you know, neuro IR, neuro endo, neurosurgery, you guys have kind of explained that there's just so much more out there coming and, and it's always kind of the, the whole scope is changing, you know, every month, every year. What's some advice you want to give to some early physicians out there getting to start their career? Omar, any advice for them? Yeah, I mean, if the ones that are considering neuroendovascular as a field, I think the people who do well are the ones who appreciate and kind of respect the pathology. You know, a lot of a lot of times I get questions from our neurosurgery medical students that aren't you bummed that you're coiling aneurysms instead of clipping them, for example, and not not really, not if you appreciate the pathology and understand that this is the safest way and this is how if I had a brain aneurysm, I'd probably want it done. So it, it really now I think we're attracting people who really uh, kind of love the anatomy, appreciate the kind of the, just the pathology, whether it's and, you know, because it changes. Uh, and when Dave and I were probably going into neurosurgery, we never thought we'd be waking up at 2 a.m. to do a stroke case, <laughs> running into the hospital and doing that. But that's where our field's evolving. And, and we like it. We, we like seeing the improvement in patients and we'll go do it, even though technically I didn't sign up to be woken up in the middle of the night to quickly run in within a 30 minute window to do a stroke. But that's what kind of excites us now. So I think it's really looking at what the disease processes and realizing that you should become an expert of the disease, not an expert of a procedure. And whatever that disease requires, you just have to have the tools to treat it. That's what I kind of encourage people to think about. Those are great words of wisdom. What about you, David? Any words of wisdom to the young people out there? Yeah, the, the only thing you can be certain of in the future is change. So being okay with change and how your, your career as you start it will not be how it finishes. 
and being okay with that and being pliable about that. And uh, secondly, you know, follow your passions. You need to be passionate about cerebrovascular, neurovascular if you're going to go into this field because it can be hard work. Like Omar said, you know, you're, you're going to get called at 2 a.m. and expected to be in the hospital in 30 minutes. And um, it could be that way for the next 50 years or maybe the next two years and they find some better way to treat stroke in the field with an ambulance. Who knows? But it's really about being passionate about the care of the patients that have these diseases. And if you are, then you're going to be happy. I find, you know, all the techniques and, and, and the way how neurovascular specialists think is very cerebral, technical, and strategic. I've definitely learned so much from being exposed and being able to apply those techniques to the peripheral space. I mean, I've gone to like a neuro embo club and I could understand about 10% of it because it's so advanced. But, you know, you guys really have so much to teach to the field and, and your field is so cool. And I really appreciate you taking the time and teaching all of our listeners what you do. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sabine. Thanks so much for having us. It's been great. I've always listened to podcasts. I've never been on one before, so it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks, David. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. This is great. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Omar. Thanks, guys. We, we look forward to having more with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 